So First Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 1. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. So just we're going to pause right there. One verse as we read that. Now, please note that this reference to the book of the kings of Israel is not what we know today as the books of First and Second Kings, um, which precede First and Second Chronicles in our Bibles. Although the first eight chapters that we went through in First Chronicles chapter, chapters 1 through 8, the genealogies there are found in the book of the kings that is referenced in this first verse. So we immediately go from a summary statement regarding the genealogy of Israel to their captivity in Babylon and the reason for their exile. It says, because of their breach of faith. So very simple, very clear very upfront. There's nothing obscure about it. Uh, it's very clear why it is that the Lord had brought them into captivity in Babylon. It was because of their breach of faith. Uh, we could also say it's because they were simply unfaithful. Unfaithful to who? Unfaithful to God first and foremost. And that is why they were taken into captivity. Now, If you think about it, it's quite simple. That's all we have as an explanation. We know that there are greater details as far as their sin is concerned and their breach of faith. But on the surface, and this is is what we need to really keep in mind. On the surface, this could seem like a severe consequence, right? I mean, they were, this is the whole nation of Israel. The whole nation of Israel is given into captivity to Babylon. And it was because they were unfaithful to God. Who's faithful to God? There's not one person who's faithful to God, is there? So this must have been something serious. God isn't capricious. He isn't one who uh, vacillates or is is, uh, unjust. He's not unfair. He's just. He's compassionate. He's long-suffering. And so it had to be something very serious. But on the surface again, then this is what we need to think about. It seems like a harsh response by God or a severe consequence of their sin. But what does our sin deserve? Judgment. That's what it deserves. It deserves judgment. Should the Lord... Give them another chance, perhaps. Perhaps he's given them, and you don't know, many chances. Over and over and over and over. And yet God does give them another opportunity. 70 years later. That's God's mercy. That's God's compassion. 70 years after their exile is when he gave them another opportunity and brought them back into the promised land. After their discipline in God's judgment. Listen, God is love. And you hear this from the world, right? The world will say God is love. But what they really mean is they're redefining that love. It means be tolerant of sin. Compromise. Give in a little bit 
And yet we know that God's love does not give in, does not compromise. It's not one that, that overlooks sin, but has dealt with this, this sin face dead on, face first, right into it. In fact, we know that, that God dealt with sin by sending His Son to the cross to deal with it. God is love, but love is not sin overlooked, but rather confronted and dealt with, as we see evidenced here even, once more. From the list of our values, in fact, I was thinking about this, from the list of our values taken from refugefellowship.org. When you go to the portion where it says grace, it says this, and I quote, We recognize God's grace in our lives. He has forgiven us, and so we freely share that forgiveness with others. That translates into being people who are learning patience, flexibility, compassion, and unconditional love with others. But it also says this, quote, grace doesn't ignore sin. It deals with it and forgives it, close quote. It is when we deal with our sin through confession and repentance that God forgives it. First John chapter 1 verse 9. He's already made the way to being right in Christ through the shed blood of Christ, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I remember having this conversation with um, our dear friend Karen, who is now in the presence of God's glory. And I remember having this conversation with her as far as like, so when it comes to forgiveness, we can forgive others, right? If someone who uh, has offended us, uh, we, we can say, you know what, I'm not going to hold it against them. I, I forgive them on my end. But when is that forgiveness complete? Like, for instance, let's say uh, with God. It is not until we ourselves yield to his authority and confess our sins and repent that he at that point has the, ability, has the, the opportunity to forgive us. Is that not right? Otherwise... There's this thing called universalism. And everyone would be forgiven regardless of whether you like it or not. Everyone would be saved whether you like it or not. But that's not the case. We have to exercise exercise that free will to choose to be obedient to what God's standard is and what he requires for us to be personally forgiven. I I would have to go to... Uh, one of you, if I offended you, and humble myself, confess that I had, had sinned against you, and ask for your forgiveness. And then there would be restoration, then there would be reconciliation. And that's how it works. And so we know that God has dealt with our sin, but we need to go through that process in order for us to be restored and reconciled with one another and with God. Um, otherwise, First John 1, 9 um, it wouldn't be necessary. If we confess our sins, if, there's that word, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we know God is just and his discipline is perfect and Judah was judged, taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Seventy years pass and then we get to verse 2. Seventy years in between verses 1 and 2. We have the return to Israel. Verse 2 says, Now the first to dwell again in their possessions in their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. Three things to note here. 
Number one, God emphasized what led to the judgment of his people. Secondly, God emphasized what happened after the judgment of his people. Reminds me of what the exchange between Jesus and Peter. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 33, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Jesus was fully man and he was fully God. He knew that Peter would deny him three times. Listen, God is always interested in and desires a people reconciled unto him. This glorifies him and blesses others. This is exactly what was happening with Peter. He knew that he was going to fall short. He was going to deny him three times. And yet he told him, hey, listen. When you turn again, when you repent, make sure you go and strengthen your brothers. And he did indeed that. He did. Thirdly, in case you didn't notice, there's no reference to the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. There's one Israel that's noted in verse 2. God hates division, as is noted by Paul in his letter to the Romans. Romans 16, 17 says, Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Apparently, it's very serious. So serious that in the very word of God, we see here how it is that divisions among the brethren is something not only to avoid, but to make sure you don't participate with the person, either by joining with them in some way, shape, or form, or by participating with them in any way, shape, or form. In fact, in Psalm 133, it says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, right? In unity. To know what destroys and what God hates, we can also look to Proverbs. So in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 6, in verse 16, it says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. We need to know what God hates in order for us. Those are the things we ought to hate. Should we not? We hate those things that God hates, and we love those things that God loves. And that's how we know that we are, we, we are not aligning ourselves with, with anything that opposes the Lord, but we're aligning ourselves with God himself and his word. Because these are the very things that led up to Israel's judgment. It's very important to know that. Would you like to be disciplined? Would you like to be judged by the Lord? Absolutely not. I, I would rather not. I, I would rather bless him and glorify him, even though I may make mistakes. I do not want to get to the point to where I am completely ignoring or turning my back or rebelling on, uh, against God's word 
and fall into that place to where I am disciplined by the Lord. I don't want to do that. Because these are the things that we ought to know led up to Israel's judgment. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to be united in the same mind and the same judgment, which is known in the standard or by the standard of the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Once again, there was some semblance of unity with God's people. After their Babylonian exile, there was some semblance of unity with God's people, and they were brought back by God to the promised land after 70 years. First thing that's done is the reestablishment of the worship of God. This return is in reference to the days of Ezra, uh, I know, sisters, you're, you're studying through uh, men. Um, we've studied through Nehemiah and Ezra. And so we know, as we look back, the return, this return that's being referenced here is to the days of Ezra. There are three groups that are identified here, priests, Levites, and temple servants. First of all, we know that the priests are descendants of Aaron. Secondly, Levites are from the tribe of Levi. And then thirdly, temple servants. This is a general assignment of people to the service of the temple. Not necessarily uh, do they have to be Levites. Uh, The people are brought back and the first order of business by God is to restore and reestablish the temple and the worship of God. This is first and foremost uh, what's important to the Lord. Worship is central to God, but there is no worship if there is no sacrifice offered. And so therefore, this was the first order of business. What was then is the same today when it comes to worshiping God. You know when we come, like the way we start out um, the service of worship is we begin with a few songs. Uh, It's to help us to focus our attention on the Lord. Um, It's to sing His praises uh, no matter what we had leading up to this moment, we are to leave all of that aside. Uh, we ought to bring something to offer to the Lord. And it should be this. Ourselves completely. And so we need to be mindful. It really doesn't matter what you've been, been through up to this very point, this very moment. At this moment, who is most important? Is it you? Is it me? Absolutely not. Our focus at that that moment, at the beginning of service, even leading up to it, should be the Lord. Above all. We ought to, at that moment, understand we are to deny ourselves and we we ought to focus our attention on the Lord. In fact, Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It means everything. Your, your person. Well, this is what's established at the very beginning. And that's the worship of God. Let's continue. Verse 3. 
And some of the people of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh lived in Jerusalem. Uthai, the son of Amihud, son of Omri, son of Imri, son of Bani, from the sons of Perez, the sons of, son of Judah, and of the Shilonites, Asaiah, the firstborn, and his sons, of the sons of Zerah, Jel, and their kinsmen, 690, of the Benjaminites, um, Salu, the son of Meshulam, the son of Hodaviah, son of Hasanua, uh, Ibnia, the son of Jerome, Elah, the son of Uzi, son of Mikri, and Meshulam, the son of Shephatiah, son of Ruel, son of Ibnijah, and their kinsmen, according to their generations, 956, all were heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses. So the, the first uh, group of people that are noted are basically the citizens of Jerusalem. They are the first to be noted. Um, by the way, this, is, this list is similar. If it looks similar, um, it's, it, it's because we see it also in Nehemiah chapter 11. Um, sisters, you just went through that, right? I believe, Nehemiah chapter 11. So very similar list you find there in Nehemiah chapter 11. But let's continue. Verse 10. We get to the separate groups. We're going to note first and foremost uh, the priests. So verse 10 uh, of the priests, Jediah, Jehorib, Jachin, and Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Meraioth, son of Atub, the chief officer of the house of God. And Adai, the son of Jeroam, son of Peshur, son of Melchijah, and Messiah, the son of Adiel, son of Jezra, son of Meshulam, son of Meshulamith, son of Imer, besides our kinsmen, heads of their father's houses, 1,760 mighty men for the work of the service of the house of God. The priests. We have the names... But what I want to focus on is how they are described. They are described as mighty men of valor for the work of the service of the house of God. This description is the same that is given to warriors who are courageous, strong, skilled, that means able men, and fearless to serve the king And confront the enemy to be loyal, trustworthy, and faithful. It's the same word found in Joshua chapter 1 verse 14. Used for those who were to fight the enemies of God in the promised land. Those who were of the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. Who were to come across to the other side with the rest of the tribes. And ensure that all of the land was secured. And then they could make their way back. The mighty men of valor were to join them. Joshua 1.14 It's the same wording used by the angel of the Lord in reference to Gideon in Judges chapter 6 verse 12. It was used by God to battle against and defeat the Midianites. Gideon's 300. Mighty men of valor. A quality, you could say, that is required for a Christian to possess today. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 
2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of love, of power and love and of self-control. This requires faithfulness and loyalty, being trustworthy toward one, toward God. And yet what has plagued our churches is this elusive issue. And I know I've brought it up. I cannot bring it up enough. Of feelings. Feelings. That directly undermines the resolve of a believer to exhibit perseverance rooted simply in God's word, faithful to him alone. Listen. Men have feelings. Warriors have feelings. But they don't determine a warrior's actions. A mighty man of valor is not led by, is, is not the choices that a mighty man of valor makes, especially on the battlefield, has nothing to do with feelings. He is disciplined enough to overcome them with what is right. God's word. What do we do with those things that, those thoughts that come into our mind? What do we do when our heart is leading us in the wrong way? Well, we subject them to the authority of God's word. That's why it's important, brothers and sisters, to know the word of God in such a way that at least you know generally, like, you know, I, I need to go here, I need to go there in the Bible in order for me to get a clear understanding or encouragement in how to deal with this. I am not going to rely on the thoughts that I have in my mind. I am not going to rely on the feelings that I'm experiencing in the moment. I am going to go to the very word of God for the answer to how to respond in this very moment. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. These priests had to be mighty men for the work of the service of the house of God. Not anyone else, but just simply for the house of God. Let's continue. We're going to get to the group that we referred to at the very beginning of the service, of the message. The list of Levites is, are, is found in verses 14 through 16 of the Levites, Shammai, the son of Hashab, son of Azricam, son of Hashabiah, of the sons of Merari, and Bakar, Haresh, Galal, and Matani, the son of Micah, son of Zikri, son of Asaph, and Obadiah, the son of Shemaiah, son of Galal, and uh, son of Jeduthun, And Barakai, the son of Asa, son of Elkanah, who lived in the villages of the Netophathites. Um, again, the list of the Levites. Um, we see it beginning here. These were noted as the Levitical leaders among the organized group of Levites that were serving in the house of the Lord. Let's continue on to the gatekeepers, though. In verse 17, the gatekeepers were Shalem, Akub, Talman, 
Amon and their kinsmen. Shalem was a chief until they were in the king's gate on the east side as the gatekeepers of the camps of the Levites. Uh, Shalem, the son of Kor, son of Ebiasaph, son of Korah, and his kinsmen of his father's house. The Korahites Korath, uh, were in charge of the work of the service, keepers of the thresholds. You remember that word? Thresholds of the tent, as their fathers had been in charge of the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, was a chief officer over them in time past. The Lord was with him. Zechariah, the son of Meshelamiah, was gatekeeper at the entrance of the tent of meeting. All these who were chosen as gatekeepers at the thresholds were 212. They were enrolled by genealogies in their villages. David and Samuel, the seer, established them in their office of trust. So they and their sons were in charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, that is the house of the tent as guards. The gatekeepers were on the four sides, east, west, north, and south. And their kinsmen who were in their villages were obligated to come in every seven days in turn to be with these. For the four chief gatekeepers who were Levites uh, were entrusted to be over the chambers and the treasures of the house of God. And they lodged around the house of God for on them laid the duty of watching and they had charge of opening it every morning. The gatekeepers. The gatekeepers were the guards. They were signed to the gates and over the house of the Lord. They're also known as temple guards. Their purpose? Well, to keep out anyone who was not authorized to be there. Who was not authorized to be there? The enemy was not authorized to be there. Anyone who meant to bring harm to those within. Discernment, alertness, sober-mindedness, watchfulness. All of these attributes were to be exercised by the gatekeepers to guard against subtle or obvious dangers. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, not just in a moment, but always. It's an ongoing activity that we should be engaged in. Be being watchful. Be being sober-minded, clear-minded. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We get the picture, right? We understand. Listen, gatekeepers had to be willing to lay down their own lives for the sake of the ones they were guarding. They had to be willing to do that. John fifteen thirteen. greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. Gatekeepers, eh? they had to be trustworthy. No? They are going to be relied upon. They were relied upon for the very well-being of those that were inside. Otherwise, they would be useless. David and Samuel assigned 212 of them. And and note how they described this group of men that were chosen and assigned. They, David and Samuel, established them in their office of trust. 
office of trust. If they can't be trusted to guard, then they shouldn't be assigned to guarding the gates, period. Not trustworthy. You can't count on them. Then by all means, please, don't assign them to any gate whatsoever. There's no gate that's inconsequential. It says they guarded all sides, east, west, north, south. They guarded from every angle. They were obligated to stand guard for guard duty for one week. Um, you stand peer sentry duty. What's a shift, Christopher? Eight hours? Four hours? Four? And I remember, you know, peer sentry duty is it is it sometimes it can get boring, especially if it's in the middle of the night. But it's a very important job because you're 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 guarding the entrance to the ships that are along the piers there in the different slips. So very important. But get this: these gatekeepers were on duty for one whole week. They were on a rotation, but at the same time. They were there to stand guard for one whole week. They were entrusted with the key to the gates and they were given the responsibility to unlock and lock the gates each and every day. In the morning, they were to unlock the gates. In the evening, they were to lock the gates and make sure that they were secured. They were accountable to each other as they kept account of the articles for the temple. By the way, this is the integrity that should be kept within the church itself. Accountable to each other. And you know what that that requires? That demands of those who are assigned to the various positions within the church is transparency, is accountability. There's this trustworthiness going back and forth. You You can trust your whole life to the other one and you are not afraid of being held accountable yourself. That is what's required of a servant of God. And that is what should be exhibited by those who are serving within the church. These men were accountable to each other. They kept account of the articles for the temple. Counted them in the presence of the other guards to ensure that all was accounted for. And they kept an account or a record of everyone who came in and out. Those who are serving within the church should know, they should know themselves, engage with those who are coming in and out. If those serving, especially those who are leading, just keep to themselves and never engage with people, then by all means you're failing as a gatekeeper, as an overseer of the church. We are to be the servants of all. We are to know. We are to keep an account. We are to know what is happening within the church. Remember what we're responsible for. And I'm speaking to myself and I'm speaking to most of all the leadership within this church. That is how we are to engage with those that have been entrusted to our care. Me being the one who is ultimately accountable will be held accountable 
for all of you. That is a great responsibility, but I know that by the Lord and His Spirit, it's not for nothing. It's not in vain. May He have His effective work done and completed in and through this body of believers that we call refuge. But these men were transparent. They were allowing themselves to be held accountable. They were responsible to ensure there was order. They were responsible to ensure that there was reverence in the house of the Lord. Again, they were mindful of who was there and for what purpose they were there. They took that responsibility very serious. In fact, at the gate, they had to ask him, what is your purpose for your visit? Why is it that you want to enter into and through this gate? Well, while David had assigned 212, Ezra notes that 139 gatekeepers came back from Babylonian exile with Zerubbabel. If you remember our study in Nehemiah, men, you will remember that some of the first positions that were assigned were gatekeepers. Gatekeepers. Therefore, gatekeepers were to be trustworthy servants of the Lord who could be counted on to ensure that the business within was sound and could be executed without concern from threats from the outside. The building of the house of the Lord would be facilitated by the gatekeepers. Our own minds and hearts need to have the guard of God's word to serve as the gatekeeper. Otherwise, the enemy creeps in and wreaks havoc if left unkept and unguarded. And I know that I had read 2 Corinthians 10, 5, and 6, but it's fitting right here. We, we, we you and I, destroy arguments in every lofty opinion. You know people have opinions, right? Every single one of us have an opinion. Let's submit them to the authority of God's word. Because it says we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion. Raised against the knowledge of God. What's the knowledge of God? It's his very word. If our opinion doesn't hold up against the word of God. Then it's a faulty opinion. It's just an opinion. And it was wrong. We need to yield to the authority of God's word and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience, not just some, but every single disobedience when your obedience is complete. They were also responsible for the instruments. Verse 28, as we continue, says some of them had charge of the utensils of service, for they were required to count them when they were brought in and taken out. Others of them were appointed over the furniture and over all the holy utensils, also over the fine flour, the wine, the oil, the incense, and the spices. Others of the sons of the priests prepared the mixing of the spices. And Mattathiah, one of the Levites, the firstborn of Shalem, the Korahite, uh, was entrusted with making the flat cakes. Also, some of their kinsmen of the Kohathites had charge of the showbread to prepare it every Sabbath. Uh, so some were responsible for the utensils, um, for the showbread, for the flatbread. I mean, all of, all of those details were important and are important to God. 
That's why it's important as we gather together, there are, there are things within the church that the details of what God has gifted you with are important to the health and the building up of the church. And so never think that you have nothing to offer. You, you, each and every one of you have something to offer the body of Christ here. And you are important to the building up of the body of Christ. In sound doctrine, that we may grow and mature in Christ. And as we do so, we mature, we know God's word, and we're not easily tossed to and fro by every false wind of doctrine, false doctrine. And so, all of these positions, all of these people were important. Uh, The most important thing is to be faithful to the Lord, be accountable and trustworthy. And then there were singers, the ministers of music. Verse 33, now these, the singers, the heads of fathers' houses uh, of of the Levites, were in the chambers of the temple, free from other service, for they were on duty day and night. These were heads of fathers' houses of the Levites, according to their generation's leaders. These lived in Jerusalem. Again, what mattered was that they were faithful to their service. Leading in their ministry, dedicated to working in harmony with the others who were serving in the temple. So they needed to be faithful, first and foremost, to the Lord. Again, very important. And if you note there, in verse 34, it says, According to their generation's leaders. So, these ministers of music were considered to be leaders within the service of God in the house of the Lord. Verse 35 in Gibeon lived the father of Gibeon, Jael, the name of his wife was Makkah, and his firstborn son Abdon, then Zer, Kish, Baal, Ner, Nadab, Gedor, Ahio, Zechariah, and Mikloth. And Mikloth was the father of Shimeim, and these also lived opposite their kinsmen in Jerusalem with their kinsmen. Uh, Ner fathered Kish, Kish fathered Saul, Saul fathered Jonathan, Malkishua, Abinadab, and Eshbal. And the son of Jonathan was Meribal, and Meribal fathered Micah, the sons of Micah, uh, Python, Melech, Tereah, and Ahaz. And Ahaz fathered Jerah, and Jerah fathered Alameth, uh, Asmaveth, and Zimri, and Zimri fathered Moza. Moza fathered Benaiah, and Rephiah was his son. Uh, Elias, Eliasa, his son, Azel, his son. Azel had six sons, and these are their names. Erechim. Uh, Bekeru, Eshmel, Zariah, Obadiah, and Hanan. These were the sons of Azel. So, um, what we just went through there um, are the genealogy or the descendants of Saul, both pre and post. The number of generations uh, in Saul's uh, genealogy were 12 post Saul. So, uh, we're going to get to that though in just a few moments as far as uh, what happens in chapter 10. So let's go to chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was wounded by the archers. 
Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died. Thus Saul died, he and his three sons, and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that the army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Now, just real quick. According to uh, Amos chapter 9, verse 7, the Philistines were originally from the island of Crete. Um, now, if we consider what, what uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus in regards to the Cretans about, we understand um, just them a little bit better. Um, we understand that the Cretans, um, other than what they're described in by the Apostle Paul in his letter to Titus, they like to drink alcohol and they were very good at, at the, in the use of iron. Uh, so they used iron to make various utensils for everyday living, as well as instruments of warfare. And so this made them a formidable enemy, especially of the Israelites. Now Titus 1, 12 and 13 says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And he says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Apparently, there's a time to rebuke sharply. And it's these men with this type of, a, of character that were to be rebuked sharply. Why? For this purpose, that they may be sound in faith. You know, there are some guys that I used to hang out with. And they were harsh. They um, had potty mouths, and they were very much of the world. And it's interesting how it is that, you know, you have to shoot straight with most of them. You have to tell them, hey, th- this, is, this is how it is. And I remember the time that I was there, especially in San Diego, there were those who were coming to the Lord just because... Um, the Lord was working, he was, he was doing something there, but it was their peers that were coming alongside them and just giving them the gospel, just plain and simple how it is. We weren't trying to be gentle with them, and they knew exactly where they stood. These Cretans, they were confronted, they were rebuked sharply that they may be sound in the faith. These were the very men who were constant enemies of Israel. And it was the Philistine champion, you remember Goliath, who was killed by David with a sling and stone in 1 Samuel chapter 17. This account in this chapter of this battle and the death of Saul and his sons is covered in our study. Uh, it has been covered in our study previously taught in 1 Samuel chapter 31. So we're not going to go into detail in regards to this battle, but we are going to make a, a few comments in regards to this in the whole event that we have before us. The enemy, the, the Philistines, they penetrated deeply into the territory of the Israelites and defeated a compromised leader. The king of Israel, Saul himself, who was, he was a compromised leader and therefore a compromised people. I mean, these Philistines went deep into Israel territory. Why they were allowed to? Where are the gatekeepers? Where are those who were guarding the nation of Israel? 
Well, they were, they were compromised. Perhaps they weren't alert. They weren't sober-minded. They weren't watchful. Obviously, right? If the enemy came in that deep into Israel territory. But this battle was fierce. And as we see here, but the Philistines overcame Saul and his sons. Saul was struck by an arrow. And Saul knew in the moment that it was a fatal blow. It was a mortal blow. He was dying. His death was imminent. It was coming. And so he asked his armor bearer to take his life, to just finish him off. The last thing he wanted for, was for him to be taken captive by the Philistines and tortured and made a spectacle for his men. And so he, he wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. He asked his armor bearer. His armor bearer was, was fearful. Um, after all, this is the man whom he served and was willing to give his life, not take his life. And so he didn't. Saul, King Saul, he leaned into his own sword and his armor bearer did the same. There's no further reason to live. My whole purpose for living was to live for and guard King Saul. And so we know that not only did Saul die his armor bearer, but so did his sons. And we have in verse 7 the consequences of their defeat. Verse 7 once again says, And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that the army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. When, when Israel's army saw that Saul and his sons were dead, and then that the Philistine army had withdrawn, they had withdrawn, they had left. Instead of staying there and securing the cities, they abandoned them. At that moment, their hearts had melted with fear. And they ran. They were all fearful that the Philistines would come back. And indeed they did. They came back. They found abandoned cities and they occupied them easily. That is the Philistines. You see, fear and panic had set in the hearts of the people when the leaders were killed. King Saul, his sons, anyone who could lead them in battle, apparently, so they thought. We're done, they were gone, they didn't know what to do. Hey, listen, the enemy knows his tactic all too well. And time and time and time again, he likes to do this. He likes to go after the leader and the leaders. He'll attempt it over and over and over and over again. And if he can get them to fold and fall, then the rest will fall easily. And just as Jesus knew, they all scatter. Right? The enemy knows that all too well. That's why it's important. Listen, as a pastor, I have to stand with the Lord. And I will stand with the Lord, come what may. I will take whatever comes at me. It's difficult. Sometimes it's more difficult than other times. But let me tell you that if you are in any way participating in ministry, if you are a, a ministry leader, it is vital that you stand your ground. That you are drawing closer to the Lord. And that you stand loyal and trustworthy to him and him alone. 
Because the people that have been entrusted to you are looking to you and counting on you. And they will be either encouraged or discouraged by you. Will you stand? Will you be found faithful? Because what happens is fear and panic sets in the hearts of the people if there's fear and panic in the heart of the leader. Stand strong and courageous. Because the enemy knows this tactic all too well and he'll go after the leader every single time. And if he can't do that, then he'll go for those who are on the fringe. The sheep that are kind of separated from the fold. He'll go after them and perhaps he can start undermining and start affecting the flock. And if the leader doesn't take care of that, then soon the whole flock will be affected and it'll be because a leader has not taken his role seriously and done something about the enemy trying to attack from without. Listen, with this, what we have before, Saul had actually done this to himself. Because we need to remember that it was Saul's sin that brought God's judgment upon him and his sons and put the entire nation in jeopardy. He had already compromised the whole nation by his own sin, his own compromise. A lot of lessons to, to learn as we, as we go through this. But let's continue on. So verse 8 says, The next day when the Philistines came to strip of the slain, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa, and they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head to the temple of Dagon. So let's stop there. This is the enemy's trophy. The Philistines came back and attributed the defeat of Saul and his army to the favor of their idols and their false god, Dagon. Listen, any defeat by the enemy against God's people will be exploited by the enemy to draw attention away from God and the truth of the matter and instead exalt idolatry and false gods to be praised and worshipped in the place of God. That is just what the enemy does. The enemy will exploit a situation to their benefit, to his benefit. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. Don't think that you can play around with the enemy. Because this is exactly what he'll do. Their heads and armor were on display in Bitshan in the temple of Dagon. In fact, a few years ago when we went to Israel, we went to Betshan, and we saw on the hill exactly where this temple stood, was erected in that day, and the walls that were there, their heads and their armor were on display. And we saw exactly this, the, the Roman city that was down below, and then the, the hill where this temple would be erected. Listen, all this was done to insult and disgrace God's name and elevate their God's name, whatever their God's name is. It could be, now, outside of that, it could be self, it could be uh, their idol, could be whatever it is that they exalt above God. Because the enemy always wants to mock and glorify false gods. This is just their M.O. 
Verse 11 says, But when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and brought them to Jabesh. And they burned their bones under the oak in Jabesh and fasted seven days. These honorable and valiant men, men of valor, they heard what had taken place. They came and took Saul's and his son's bodies and gave them an honorable service. At that time, when Saul and Israel were disgraced in this tragic way, including the abandonment of the land by the army of Israel, these men rose up and valiantly did what was right to honor the name of the Lord. You see, for them, the most important thing was to uphold the name of the Lord. No matter what, it was to uphold the name of the Lord. And so they came. Listen, when the rest of the army fled, these valiant men, these men of valor, came. And they took down their bodies and their remains, and they gave them an honorable service. That's what they did. And this was all to honor, ultimately, the name of the Lord. Verse 13, as we wrap up, So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium, seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So why did this happen to Saul? Because of his unfaithfulness toward God. Simple bottom line. Instead of seeking God... He consulted a medium, and he did not keep the Lord's command. Instead of seeking God, what do you seek? Again, we go back to opinions, feelings, circumstances. What determines your response? Is it just God's word? Or are you led by anything else? Listen, for Saul... He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Well, this was definitely a sin that led to death. Uh, as we, we know that to be noted in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. And again, the question for us, to leave with or end with is how do we seek guidance from the Lord today? Do we and how do we do that? Through and by his word. And I'll leave you with with these references to scripture. 2 Peter 1.3. If you're taking notes, jot them down. You can look them up. That way you can can see for yourself. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. And if you lack wisdom... You go to none other than God himself. James 1, 5 through 8. So note those and read them. Consider them, meditate on God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once more for this time that you've given to us to study your word. Father, I pray that this evening we were encouraged by understanding what you require of your servant, and that is faithfulness. May we be loyal to you, trustworthy. As we're accountable to you, 
Lord, we fear not being accountable to each other. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen your church, Lord, that you would fortify each and every one of us. That we would not be fooled or swayed by the tactics of the enemy. But we would be watchful, sober-minded, discerning, Lord, knowing what is of you and what is not of you. What is to be allowed? What is to be rejected? And so, Father, may each of us, Lord, as we consider these things, Lord, let us be found faithful to you. Help us, Lord. Give us your wisdom. Help us understand situations and, um, and Lord, what it is that you expect, require of us according to your word. So we thank you, Father, and we pray this all in Jesus' name.